I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Today on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, the second of two back-to-back episodes written by Philip K. Dick. The hardest part of the preordained thesis to grasp is that the thesis itself is part of what must and shall be. Will time travel cause the end of the human race? Or will it allow them to fix the future? Medler, that's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. Medler is one of 16 short stories in an audiobook collection we've narrated from legendary author Philip K. Dick. The 16 stories appeared in science fiction magazines from 1952 to 1955. The Philip K. Dick collection is on sale now on many audiobook websites, but you can get this more than 10-hour audiobook for only $7.97 when you use the promo code SALE. That's SALE, lowercase letters only, on LostSciFi.com. Medler was first published in Future Science Fiction Magazine in October 1954. They entered the great chamber. At the far end, technicians hovered around an immense illuminated board, following a complex pattern of lights that shifted rapidly, flashing through seemingly endless combinations. At long tables, machines whirred, computers, human-operated, and robot. Wall charts covered every inch of vertical space. Hasten gazed around him in amazement. Wood laughed. Come over here and I'll really show you something. You recognize this, don't you? He pointed to a hulking machine surrounded by silent men and women in white lab robes. I recognize it, Hasten said slowly. It's something like our own dip, 
but perhaps twenty times larger. What do you haul up, and when do you haul? He fingered the surface plate of the dip, then squatted down, peering into the maw. The maw was locked shut. The dip was in operation. You know, if we had any idea this existed, Histo Research would have, you know now, Wood bent down beside him. Listen, Hasten, you're the first man from outside the department ever to get into this room. You saw the guards. No one gets in here unauthorized. The guards have orders to kill anyone trying to enter illegally. To hide this? A machine? You'd shoot to... They stood, Wood facing him, his jaw hard. Your dip digs back into antiquity, Rome, Greece, dust, and old volumes. Wood touched the big dip beside them. This dip is different. We guard it with our lives and anyone else's lives. Do you know why? Hasten stared at it. This dip is set not for antiquity, but for the future. Wood looked directly into Hasten's face. Do you understand? The future. You're dredging the future? But you can't. It's forbidden by law. You know that. Hasten drew back. If the executive council knew this, they'd break this building apart. You know the dangers. Burkowski himself demonstrated them in his original thesis. Hasten paced angrily. I can't understand you, using a future-oriented dip. When you've pulled material from the future, you automatically introduce new factors into the present. The future is altered. You start a never-ending shift. The more you dip, the more new factors are brought in. You create unstable conditions for centuries to come. That's why the law was passed. Wood nodded. I know. And you still keep dipping? Hasten gestured at the machine and the technicians. Stop, for God's sake. Stop before you introduce some lethal element that can't be erased. Why do you keep... Wood sagged suddenly. All right, Hasten, don't lecture us. It's too late. It's already happened. A lethal factor was introduced in our first experiments. We thought we knew what we were doing. He looked up. And that's why you were brought here. Sit down. You're going to hear all about it. They faced each other across the desk. Wood folded his hands. I'm going to put it straight on the line. You are considered an expert, the expert at histo research. You know more about using a time dip than anyone alive. That's why you've been shown our work, our illegal work. And you've already got into trouble? Plenty of trouble. And every attempt to meddle further makes it that much worse. Unless we do something, we'll be the most culpable organization in history. Please, start at the beginning, Hasten said. The dip was authorized by the Political Science Council. They wanted to know the results of some of their decisions. At first, we objected, giving Burkowski's theory. But the idea is hypnotic, you know. We gave in, and the dip was built, secretly, of course. We made our first dredge about one year hence. To protect ourselves against Burkowski's factor, we tried a subterfuge. We actually brought nothing back. This dip is geared to pick up nothing. No object is scooped. It merely photographs from a high altitude. 
The film comes back to us, and we make enlargements and try to gestalt the conditions. Results were all right at first. No more wars, cities growing, much better looking. Blow-ups of street scenes show many people. Well content, apparently. Pace a little slower. Then we went ahead fifty years, even better. Cities on the decrease. People not so dependent on machines. More grass, parks. Same general conditions. Peace, happiness, much leisure. Less frenetic waste. Hurry. We went on, skipping ahead. Of course, with such an indirect viewing method, we couldn't be certain of anything. But it all looked fine. We relayed our information to the council, and they went ahead with their planning. And then it happened. What exactly? Hasten said, leaning forward. We decided to revisit a period we had already photographed, about a hundred years hence. We sent out the dip, got it back with a full reel. The men developed it, and we watched the run. Wood paused. And? And it wasn't the same. It was different. Everything was changed. War, war and destruction everywhere. Wood shuddered. We were appalled. We sent the dip back at once to make absolutely certain. And what did you find this time? Wood's fists clenched. Changed again. And for worse. Ruins, vast ruins. People poking around. Ruin and death everywhere. Slag. The end of war. The last phase. I see, Hasten said, nodding. That's not the worst. We conveyed the news to the council. It ceased all activity and went into a two-week conference. It canceled all ordinances and withdrew every plan formed on the basis of our reports. It was a month before the council got in touch with us again. The members wanted us to try once more, take one more dip to the same period. We said no, but they insisted. It could be no worse, they argued. So we sent the dip out again. It came back and we ran the film. Hasten, there are things worse than war. You wouldn't believe what we saw. There was no human life, none at all, not a single human being. Everything was destroyed? No, no destruction. Cities big and stately, roads, buildings, lakes, fields, but no human life. The city's empty, functioning mechanically, every machine and wire untouched, but no living people. What was it? We sent the dip on ahead at fifty-year leaps. Nothing, nothing each time. Cities, roads, buildings, but no human life. Everyone dead. Plague, radiation, or what, we don't know. But something killed them. Where did it come from? We don't know. It wasn't there at first, not in our original dips. Somehow we introduced it, the lethal factor. We brought it with our meddling. It wasn't there when we started. It was done by us, Hasten. Wood stared at him, his face a white mask. We brought it, and now we've got to find what it is and get rid of it. How are you going to do that? We built a time car, 
capable of carrying one human observer into the future. We're sending a man there to see what it is. Photographs don't tell us enough. We have to know more. When did it first appear? How? What were the first signs? What is it? Once we know, maybe we can eliminate it, the factor, trace it down and remove it. Someone must go into the future and find out what it was we began. It's the only way. Woods stood up, and Hasten rose too. You're that person, Woods said. You're going, the most competent person available. The time car is outside in an open square, carefully guarded. Wood gave a signal. Two soldiers came toward the desk. Sir, come with us, Wood said. We're going outside to the square. Make sure no one follows after us. He turned to Hasten. Ready? Hasten hesitated. Wait a minute. I'll have to go over your work, study what's been done, examine the time car itself. I can't. The two soldiers moved closer, looking to Wood. Wood put his hand on Hasten's shoulder. I'm sorry, he said. We have no time to waste. Come along with me. All around him, blackness moved, swirling toward him and then receding. He sat down on the stool before the bank of controls, wiping the perspiration from his face. He was on his way, for better or worse. Briefly, Wood had outlined the operation of the time car. A few moments of instruction, the controls set for him, and then the metal door slammed behind him. Hasten looked around him. It was cold in the sphere. The air was thin and chilly. He watched the moving dials for a while. But presently the cold began to make him uncomfortable. He went over to the equipment locker and slid the door back. A jacket, a heavy jacket, and a flash gun. He held the gun for a minute, studying it. And tools, all kinds of tools and equipment. He was just putting the gun away when the dull chugging under him suddenly ceased. For one terrible second, he was floating, drifting aimlessly. Then the feeling was gone. Sunlight flowed through the window, spreading out over the floor. He snapped the artificial lights off and went to the window to see. Wood had set the controls for a hundred years hence. Bracing himself, he looked out. A meadow flowers and grass, rolling off into the distance, blue sky and wandering clouds. Some animals grazed a long way off, standing together in the shade of a tree. He went to the door and unlocked it, stepping out. Warmy sunlight struck him, and he felt better at once. Now he could see the animal were cows. He stood for a long time at the door, his hands on his hips, could the plague have been bacterial, air-carried? If it were a plague, he reached, feeling the protective helmet on his shoulders. Better to keep it on. He went back and got the gun from the locker. Then he returned to the lip of the sphere, checked the door lock to be certain it would remain closed during his absence. Only then Hasten stepped down onto the grass of the meadow. He closed the door and looked around him. Presently, he began to walk quickly away from the sphere, toward the top of a long hill that stretched out half a mile away. As he strode along, 
he examined the click band on his wrist, which would guide him back to the metal sphere, the time car, if he could not find the way himself. He came to the cows passing by their tree. The cows got up and moved away from him. He noticed something that gave him a sudden chill. Their udders were small and wrinkled, not herd cows. When he reached the top of the hill, he stopped, lifting his glasses from his waist. The earth fell away, mile after mile of it, dry green fields without pattern or design, rolling like waves as far as the eye could see. Nothing else, he turned, sweeping the horizon. He stiffened, adjusting the sight. Far off to the left, at the very limit of vision, the vague perpendiculars of a city rose up. He lowered the glasses and hitched up his heavy boots. Then he walked down the other side of the hill, taking big steps. He had a long way to go. Hasten had not walked more than half an hour when he saw butterflies. They rose up suddenly a few yards in front of him, dancing and fluttering in the sunlight. He stopped to rest, watching them. They were all colors, red and blue, with splashes of yellow and green. They were the largest butterflies he had ever seen. Perhaps they had come from some zoo, escaped and bred wild after man left the scene. The butterflies rose higher and higher in the air. They took no notice of him, but struck out toward the distant spires of the city. In a moment, they were gone. Hasten started up again. It was hard to imagine the death of man in such circumstances. Butterflies and grass and cows in the shade. What a quiet and lovely world was left without the human race. Suddenly, one last butterfly fluttered up, almost in his face, rising quickly from the grass. He put his arm up automatically, batting at it. The butterfly dashed against his hand. He began to laugh. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Pain made him sick. He fell half to his knees, gasping and retching. He rolled over on his face, hunching himself up, burying his face in the ground. His arm ached, and pain knotted him up. His head swam, and he closed his eyes. When Hasten turned over at last, the butterfly was gone. It had not lingered. He lay for a time in the grass. Then he sat up slowly, getting shakily to his feet. 
He stripped off his shirt and examined his hand and wrist. The flesh was black, hard, and already swelling. He glanced down at it, and then at the distant city. The butterflies had gone there. He made his way back to the time car. Hasten reached the sphere a little after the sun had begun to drop into evening darkness. The door slid back to his touch, and he stepped inside. He dressed his hand and arm with salve from the medicine kit, and then sat down on the stool, deep in thought, staring at his arm. A small sting, accidental, in fact. The butterfly had not even noticed. Suppose the whole pack... He waited until the sun had completely set, and it was pitch black outside the sphere. At night, all the bees and butterflies disappeared, or at least those he knew did. Well, he would have to take a chance. His arm still ached dully, throbbing without respite. The salve had done no good. He felt dizzy, and there was a fever taste in his mouth. Before he went out, he opened the locker and brought all the things out. He examined the flash gun, but put it aside. A moment later, he found what he wanted, a blowtorch and a flashlight. He put all the other things back and stood up. Now he was ready, if that were the word for it, as ready as he would ever be. He stepped out into the darkness, flashing the light ahead of him. He walked quickly. It was a dark and lonely night. Only a few stars shone above him, and his was the only earthly light. He passed up the hill and down the other side. A grove of trees loomed up, and then he was on a level plain, feeling his way toward the city by the beam of the flashlight. When he reached the city, he was very tired. He had gone a long way, and his breath was beginning to come hard. Huge ghostly outlines rose up ahead of him, disappearing above, vanishing into darkness. It was not a large city, apparently, but its design was strange to hasten, more vertical and slim than he was used to. He went through the gate. Grass was growing from the stone pavement of the streets. He stopped, looking down. Grass and weeds everywhere, and in the corners by the buildings were bones, little heaps of bones and dust. He walked on, flashing his light against the sides of the slender buildings. His footsteps echoed hollowly. There was no light except his own. The buildings began to thin out. Soon he found himself entering a great tangled square, overgrown with bushes and vines. At the far end, a building larger than the others rose. He walked toward it, across the empty, desolate square, flashing his light from side to side. He walked up a half-buried step and onto a concrete plaza. All at once, he stopped. To his right, another building reared up, catching his attention. His heart thudded. Above the doorway, his light made out a word cut expertly into the arch. Bibliotheca. This was what he wanted. The library. He went up the steps toward the dark entrance. Wood boards gave under his feet. He reached the entrance and found himself facing a heavy wood door with metal handles. When he took hold of the handles, the door fell toward him, crashing past him, down the steps and into the darkness. 
The odor of decay and dust choked him. He went inside. Spider webs brushed against his helmet as he passed along silent halls. He chose a room at random and entered it. Here were more heaps of dust and gray bits of bones. Low tables and shelves ran along the walls. He went to the shelves and took down a handful of books. They powdered and broke in his hands, showering bits of paper and thread onto him. Had only a century passed since his own time? Hasten sat down at one of the tables and opened one of the books that was in better condition. The words were no language he knew, a romance language that he knew must be artificial. He turned page after page. At last, he took a handful of books at random and moved back toward the door. Suddenly, his heart jumped. He went over to the wall, his hands trembling. Newspapers. He took the brittle, cracking sheets carefully down, holding them to the light. The same language, of course. Bold black headlines. He managed to roll some of the papers together and add them to his load of books. Then he went through the door, out into the corridor, back the way he had come. When he stepped out onto the steps, cold, fresh air struck him, tingling his nose. He looked around at the dim outlines rising up on all sides of the square. Then he walked down and across the square, feeling his way carefully along. He came to the gate of the city, and a moment later he was outside, on the flat plain again, heading back toward the time car. For an endless time he walked, his head bent down, plodding along. Finally, fatigue made him stop swaying back and forth, breathing deeply. He set down his load and looked around him. Far off, at the edge of the horizon, a long streak of gray had appeared, silently coming into existence while he was walking. Dawn, the sun coming up. A cold wind moved through the air, eddying against him. In the forming gray light, the trees and hills were beginning to take shape, a hard, unbending outline. He turned toward the city, bleak and thin. The shafts of the deserted buildings stuck up. For a moment he watched, fascinated by the first color of day as it struck the shafts and towers. Then the color faded, and a drifting mist moved between him and the city. All at once he bent down and grabbed up his load. He began to walk, hurrying as best he could, chill fear moving through him. From the city, a black speck had leaped up into the sky and was hovering over it. After a time, a long time, Hasten looked back. The speck was still there, but it had grown, and it was no longer black. In the clear light of day, the speck was beginning to flash, shining with many colors. He increased his pace. He went down the side of a hill and up another. For a second, he paused to snap on his clickband. It spoke loudly. He was not far from the sphere. He waved his arm, and the clicks rose and fell. To the right, wiping the perspiration from his hands, he went on. A few minutes later, he looked down from the top of a ridge and saw a gleaming metal sphere resting silently on the grass, dripping with cold dew from the night. The time car, sliding and running, he leaped down the hill toward it. 
He was just pushing the door open with his shoulder when the first cloud of butterflies appeared at the top of the hill, moving quietly toward him. He locked the door and set his arm load down, flexing his muscles. His hand ached, burning now with an intense pain. He had no time for that. He hurried to the window and peered out. The butterflies were swarming toward the sphere, darting and dancing above him, flashing with color. They began to settle down onto the metal, even onto the window. Abruptly, his gaze was cut off by gleaming bodies, soft and pulpy, their beating wings mashed together. He listened. He could hear them, a muffled, echoing sound that came from all sides of him. The interior of the sphere dimmed into darkness as the butterflies sealed off the window. He lit the artificial lights. Time passed. He examined the newspapers, uncertain of what to do. Go back or ahead? Better jump ahead fifty years or so. The butterflies were dangerous, but perhaps not the real thing, the lethal factor that he was looking for. He looked at his hand. The skin was black and hard. A dead area was increasing. A faint shadow of worry went through him. It was getting worse, not better. The scratching sound on all sides of him began to annoy him, filling him with an uneasy restlessness. He put down the books and paced back and forth. How could insects, even immense insects such as these, destroy the human race? Surely human beings could combat them. Dusts, poisons, sprays. A bit of metal, a little particle drifted down onto his sleeve. He brushed it off. A second particle fell, and then some tiny fragments. He leaped, his head jerking up. A circle was forming above his head. Another circle appeared to the right of it, and then a third. All around him circles were forming in the walls and roof of the sphere. He ran to the control board and closed the safety switch. The board hummed into life. He began to set the indicator panel, working rapidly frantically. Now pieces of metal were dropping down, a rain of metal fragments onto the floor. Corrosive, some kind of substance exuded from them. Acid? Natural secretion of some sort. A large piece of metal fell. He turned. Into the sphere the butterflies came, fluttering and dancing toward him. The piece that had fallen was a circle of metal, cut cleanly through. He did not have time even to notice it. He snatched up the blowtorch and snapped it on. The flames sucked and gurgled. As the butterflies came toward him, he pressed the handle and held the spout up. The air burst alive with burning particles that rained down all over him, and a furious odor reeked through the sphere. He closed the last switches. The indicator lights flickered. The floor chugged under him. He threw the main lever. More butterflies were pushing in, crowding each other eagerly, struggling to get through. A second circle of metal crashed to the floor suddenly, emitting a new horde. Hasten cringed, backing away. The blowtorch up, spouting flame. The butterflies came on, more and more of them. Then sudden silence settled over everything, a quiet so abrupt 
that he blinked. The endless, insistent scratching had ceased. He was alone, except for a cloud of ashes and particles over the floor and walls, the remains of the butterflies that had got into the sphere. Hasten sat down on the stool, trembling. He was safe, on his way back to his own time, and there was no doubt, no possible doubt, that he had found the lethal factor. It was there, in the heap of ashes on the floor, in the circles neatly cut in the hull of the car. Corrosive secretion? He smiled grimly. His last vision of them, of the swelling horde, had told him what he wanted to know. Clutched carefully against the first butterflies through the circles were tools, tiny cutting tools. They had cut their way in, bored through. They had come carrying their own equipment. He sat down, waiting for the time car to complete its journey. Department guards caught hold of him, helping him from the car. He stepped down unsteadily, leaning against them. Thanks, he murmured. Wood hurried up. Hasten, you're all right? He nodded. Yes, except my hand. Let's get inside at once. They went through the door, into the great chamber. Sit down. Wood waved his hand impatiently, and a soldier hurried a chair over. Get him some hot coffee. Coffee was brought. Hasten sat sipping. At last he pushed the cup away and leaned back. Can you tell us now? Wood asked. Yes. Fine. Wood sat down across from him. A tape recorder whirred into life, and a camera began to photograph Hasten's face as he talked. Go on. What did you find? When he had finished, the room was silent. None of the guards or technicians spoke. Wood stood up, trembling. God, so it's a form of toxic life that got them. I thought it was something like that. But butterflies and intelligent, planning attacks, probably rapid breeding, quick adaptation. Maybe the books and newspapers will help us. But where did they come from? Mutation of some existing form? Or from some other planet? Maybe space travel brought them in. We've got to find out. They attacked only human beings, Hasten said. They left the cows. Just people. Maybe we can stop them. Wood snapped on the vidphone. I'll have the council convene an emergency session. We'll give them your description and recommendations. We'll start a program, organize units all over the planet. Now that we know what it is, we have a chance. Thanks to you, Hasten. Maybe we can stop them in time. The operator appeared and Wood gave the council's code letter. Hasten watched dully. At last, he got to his feet and wandered around the room. His arm throbbed unmercifully. Presently, he went back outside, through the doorway into the open square. Some soldiers were examining the time car curiously. Hasten watched them without feeling, his mind blank. What is it, sir? One asked. That? Hasten roused himself, going slowly over. That's a time car. No, I mean this. The soldier pointed to something on the hull. This, sir. It wasn't on there when the car went out. Hasten's heart stopped beating. He pushed past them, staring up. 
At first he saw nothing on the metal hull, only the corroded metal surface. Then chill fright rushed through him. Something small and brown and furry was there on the surface. He reached out, touching it. A sack, a stiff little brown sack. It was dry, dry and empty. There was nothing in it. It was open at one end. He stared up. All across the hull of the car were little brown sacks, some still full, but most of them already empty. Cocoons. Meddler by Philip K. Dick. Next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, as a galactic reporter, Jane Crowley knew she had hold of the biggest story of the year. Thousands of people were soon to die on this planet of doom. Planet of Doom by C.H. Thames, next week on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast with at least one lost vintage sci-fi short story in every episode. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.